Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Sever the Plot Thread. My name is Callum Quinn. I have with me a very distinguished guest, James Roberts, writer of Transformers More Than Meets the Eye, the excellent IDW comic that not enough people have read. So I recommend you check it out after this interview. So, James, do you want to introduce yourself or anything? Yeah, well, I mean, you did a pretty good job there. Yeah, More Than Meets the Eye, and it's kind of sequel but it's the same story lost light those are the two things for which i am best known and i'm sure we'll talk about them and the things before and after them but um i think it's those two comics that have got me here to talk to you today yeah well i i actually had more questions about your process as a writer and your Mm -hmm. experience with writing there's certainly a few lost light more than meets the eye questions because i am a big fan of it and i'd have to ask you know i'd I'd regret it if i didn't but i want this podcast is more to help inspire new artists and writers and make it easier for them to start creating their own stories it's basically the podcast i wish existed when i started doing this but i guess i'll just start by saying you know i found more than meets the eye in my library like 2013 2014 with volume three was utterly confused but it was transformers so i was gonna read it because i'm a big transformers fan yeah i just devoured it it's it's so weird and and fun and sad and you know it made me cry it made me laugh all these things (laughs) my mom had a funny story i said hey I'm, i'm interviewing the guy you know the guy wrote all that stuff and she was like oh you are like, whoa, I remember you would come to me and you'd be like, this happened and it was in the story. <laughs> He's so upset because I was like you know, 12 yeah. when I found it. Yeah, no, that's uh, it's, as, as time moves on, as it tends to do. And, you know, the distance between the launch of that comic and, and the present day just widens. It freaks me out when, well, people such as yourself will say, oh, yeah, no, I was there more or less you know, near the beginning. And I was 12 or I was eight or whatever people say it's um it always feels it feels simultaneously ancient and yesterday you know but um but what was it you said then fun and weird and fun weird and sad that's kind of that's a good good way of describing it i, I can't believe you started reading on volume three as well which you know some people would say it's um it's not the most forgiving series for a, for a new reader anyway but if you start on volume three like some masochist then, well, you got yourself to blame for that. But I'm glad. I'm glad you gave it a go. It was delightful. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed it. I have a lot of experience, it seems, getting into series at the worst possible time. So 2014, you said, yeah? So that, you know, you had another five years, more or less, of getting it when it came out. So that's good. Yeah, I mean, I... it's interesting. I hope with um, cause Skybound, I was going to say, Skybound have got the license now for all, all things Transformers on the printed page anyway. And yeah, there's talk of them reprinting some of the old stuff. So let's hope the IDW material gets a new lease of life and some new readers come along because the Skybound comic has about 3 million readers, which is lovely. So let's hope they, they do some digging themselves. It's a, it's, it's a good comic. I like the new one a lot, the, the Skybound stuff, but I am hoping they do. A, mm. I, I would really like a fancy, you know, premium reprint of More Than Meets the Eye something with like lots of little goodies in the back of the books and art and interviews and stuff but i mean i'd settle for just a paperback reprint honestly something to get people reading it yeah no me too so i'd go let's go for a nice 
digital copy so everyone can get it relatively cheaply and then some nice mass market paperbacks and then the big oversized hardback omnibus type thing i think then everyone's happy well I did want to ask, how did you get into writing? So I, I, I wrote prose stories before I wrote comics. And um, it was just something which, which started at school. So primary school, but that needs a translation, doesn't it, for people outside the UK. So, you know, ages, ages five, and you could go to primary school in the UK. So, and then when you're in the, um, they start doing... Um, creative writing lessons which was always my favorite wasn't into science fiction when i was very young but by the time i got to about 10 and i don't know why it may have been transformers actually got me into sci-fi are you breaking up a tad 10 i was writing science repeat that and then you can edit it perhaps or one yeah can you hear me okay yeah you're you're just a little bit glitchy it's mostly the video i think yeah well let me just yeah let me see if i if i just go to audio only for a bit callum okay See right. if that helps, and then give me a signal if um, I can still see you. But uh, wait, 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 look, but, 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 here we go. It says stop video. Let's see what happens if I do that. Right, you still there? Yep, I'm still here. Right, okay. Let's see. Um, yeah, just I can see you still. So give me a sign if um if I'm breaking up. But I'll 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 go back and answer that question again. So I got into writing when I was young at primary school, which is if you're outside the UK, that's for ages five to 11 and uh, when i was about eight nine ten they started doing creative writing lessons at school which was always my favorite and around about that time well i was i was eight when i got into transformers and i think that and and maybe the echoes of star wars and things got me into science fiction and so i tended to write a lot of uh, science fiction stories and then i very quickly got into into transformers fan fiction when I was about 12, I suppose. And, and then when the comic, the British comic finished in 1992, and I was 14, 15 years old then, I think. Anyway, the, I, I really dived headlong into Transformers fanfic then. And, and I went as far as publishing my own fanzine with my own prose writing and other people's contributions too. So uh, that was kind of my, so even back then, you know, just in terms of writing itself, there was a Transformers flavor to it from, from the early days. That's really cool. And eventually you were hired to work on the IDW book. Um, how, how did that go about? I, I know you wrote a, a full length novel of Transformers fan fiction, which I've always wanted to read and been too lazy to, but maybe you can kind <laughs> of say how, how getting hired and all that came about. Yeah, so it's it's quite a nice linear story, really. So I the, the fan fiction I mentioned, the fanzine, lasted about eighteen months, six or seven, well, six or seven issues. But in the fanzine, I started writing the story, which became Eugenesis, which was the novel length. Thing. And it wasn't just novel length. I um I went the whole hog. I got it professionally printed and bound as a paperback and it was designed to uh, emulate the penguin classics uh, aesthetic so you know it had a photograph cover and it was all very yeah it was it was tongue kind of in cheek given given the content um, but i took it very seriously and uh, i published self-published that i should hasten to add for hasbro's lawyers who are listening self-published that didn't make any money of course in 2001 and sold that at, at a convention. And then not not long after that, a few years after that, IDW got the license. 
and Nick Roach, who had been another member of the uh, of the Transmasters fan club, that's when I published the fanzine. Uh, Nick got a job doing covers for IDW, and then he did some interior work, and then he did a script, and he was rewarded with a miniseries called Last Stand of the Wreckers, which he was also going to draw. And when that workload became unmanageable, IDW said to him, we're going to bring in a co-writer. And they had some people in mind. I don't know who they were, but um, Nick sort of pushed for me to be given a chance. And in the in the three years, actually, that was 2000 and, 2009, actually. So for two years before then, I'd been pitching ideas to IDW with Nick's encouragement for various things, a Dinobot miniseries. And they used to do something called Spotlights, which was like one issue. You know, done in one, kind of focusing on the on a particular character. So I pitched a few of those, and it wasn't until last down of the records that I actually got the chance to to co-write something at least. That is, that's really cool. How did you go about pitching your work to IDW? Did you get an agent? Was there a submission thing? How and would what you did be applicable for people potentially wanting to send their work to publishers mm-hmm. or to? to solicit, I should say? Well, I'm probably, and, and I, I recognize this now in a way perhaps which I didn't at the time, but I'm probably not the best uh, example in terms of how to break into comics. And that was that was the case 10 years ago, you know, 15, well, 13 years ago. It was even more the case now because things do change. But it was really my fan fiction work and my connection to Nick and, and an IDW that was open to, to ideas. Those three things together gave me that foot in the door. And I even sent my you know, novel-sized fanfic to the editor at the time, Andy Schmidt, as well, to have a look at. So it was just a, a lucky confluence of, of, of events. In terms of the pitches, they were, you know, the, the, the thing is you don't want to, well, actually, let me take a step back. And I don't want to, I certainly don't want to deter any, any writers out there who are looking to get into comics. But the fact of the matter is that it, it is easier in one sense to break into comics as, a, as, a, as an artist than it is as a writer, simply because an editor can assess your work more quickly uh, if you're an artist, you know, at, literally, literally at a glance. Whereas if you're a writer, you've got to find an editor that's prepared to devote some time to read through a script. And that can be harder. And often, you know, these days, again, IDW, I think, has this as well that there's a note which which you know specifically says you know that they don't read unsolicited pitches or scripts and that you know that that's driven from a legal concern really because um you know, i'm telling you and telling your listeners things i'm sure they already know but there's always that risk that if you send in 500 ideas uh, you know unsolicited and then a few months or even years later you know the the, the company that you sent those ideas to publishes something which is a bit similar to an idea that you had, then they, you know, then and you try to sue them. <laughs> then you know, they do not want that, so they're careful to say that uh, if you send in anything unsolicited, it won't get read. So the best thing to do if you're looking to break into comics is if you're if you're an artist as well as a writer, then great, you can you can do both. But if you're like me, just a writer, then see if you can find an artist to collaborate with, and then this is where things have got easier. It is it is easier to distribute your work now because, you know, you can distribute it around the world online. So put your product out there for the world to see. If you are able to, you know, off your own back on a self-publishing basis, get a bit of attention, get a bit of get some people to review it, you know, make a bit of noise. 
then you're more likely for it to come to the attention of a of a commissioning editor. So that's probably the the best comic route. The other way to do it actually is to become famous for doing something else, and then you know become a celebrity comics writer. But you know that's that's harder to to, to have control over. <laughs> yeah, I sometimes feel like I am. You know, when you're like, you actually end up doing more work because you're too lazy to do the quote unquote easy thing. Oh God, yeah. Like, you know, I've pitched to a few, you know, agents. I've pitched my webcomic, Siblings of Steel. It's I would describe it as half more than meets the eye, half Zeta the Space Girl. (laughs) You know, sci-fi cops solving crimes and having some funny stuff happen to them. But uh, yeah, I pitched that, and then I was like, you know what? I'd rather be drawing this. So I was like, you know what? I'll just draw it, get 10 million followers and force somebody to publish it. <laughs> well, that's not a bad business model, actually, you know. Um, yeah. And, it, and there's a bonus to that, of course, which is that um, you know, the more you're creating, the better you're getting. You know, it's all good. So in that sense, your chances of being commissioned increase. Yeah, it's it's quite exciting. And I, I feel like this podcast has also been delightful because I get to, you know, talk to all these awesome comic creators and writers. And, you know, it's just really exciting to get you know, share, share advice, share success with people. Yes. That's a, and that's a good attitude to have. And, and if you have that type of attitude, attitude, it tends to, uh, it tends to be reciprocated. It tends to pay off. And, and in my experience, you know, the comics world, um, I think because, you know, people don't really get into comics for the money or the glamour, you know, so they're doing it for as, as hokey as it sounds, they're doing it for the love of storytelling and the love of comics, obviously. So, you know, in my experience, there's people that are there, they'll happy to give you a leg up if they can. And if they can't, well, they'll, they'll promote your stuff and say nice things about it. So uh, yeah, generally it's a, it's a supportive community, I think. Yeah, it really is. I will say I've done my fair share of a pitching more than meets the eye and lost light to people, but it is, it is probably the hardest thing I've ever had to uh, really? sell people on just yeah. because of like, it's a fantastic book, but just the, there are so many levels of like, first of all, it's a Transformers book. So everyone's like, oh, like the Michael Bay movies. And I'm like, no, I really liked Bumblebee and I liked the beasts, though those weren't Michael Bay movies. But It's a double edged sword, actually, because I'm sure without without the 2007 movie, the first movie being so successful. And, and I think every, you know, every film has made a lot of money and that really gave. The franchise itself a shot in the arm and it allowed, it allowed Hasbro to, you know, I'm sure it helped the comic. So lots and lots of positives. And then perhaps a negative is that there are, there are, there are many, many people, there are millions of people that have seen the movies and don't even know the comics exist, but their perception of Transformers for better or worse is uh, based on those films. And so if you, if you weren't keen on those movies, then it may have tarred your, uh, experience of Transformers and you'll it'll be that much harder to um, to get you into the comics and you know even without the base stuff and I hope this is changing I think it is changing but for many many years you know a toy quote-unquote a toy title was difficult to um to sell and it's funny it's like I don't know again we should all be comics is comics you know and if they're made with love and, and they're and they're made carefully you know and creatively then 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 great and it shouldn't matter where you know, this we live in an age of 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 multi-platform IP, doesn't it? Everything is derived from something else. Everything is an asset being sweated, and so as long as something isn't being done cynically, then yeah, then it's all good, you know. But I take your point. It is hard to 
get a non-Transformers fan switched onto the comics. It is. I think people really enjoy it if they did two things, which is accept that, you know, if you're starting with this one random book, you're not going to get all of the context. Mm. Two, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. No, it's gone. Well, I <laughs> well, think what something we can deal with. <laughs> yeah. Something about like not just saying it's just a dumb comic book, right? Or it's just a dumb kids comic. I think yeah. people are more accepting of that now because everything, like you said, is a spinoff or a, a sequel or at least, you know, promoted something else. Like, you know, nobody says, well, I'm not going to read Iron Man comics because they're just a spinoff of the movies, right? Yeah, that's a good uh, point. Actually, you're right. With the last 15 years or so, it was really seen. Um, you know, I don't. I'm, I wish I could think of a better term than kind of geek geek culture, but there's been, you know, genre movies, you know, and science fiction, fantasy, driven by the MCU, I guess, and Star Wars. Mm. There's a, people, you know, there's there's a whole, a, at least one new generation, that have grown up with that all around them, and it is very much mainstream, and so perhaps some of the snobbery, which I grew up with in the '80s, has um has subsided. So uh, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting what you say. Sorry, just because when yeah, because when people read more than meets the eye, because part of my writing style or my world building, part of my writing style is to world build, and you know I will, as as you'll know, I'll kind of make all these offhand fleeting references to events or characters, and um, and I know, and people who are well versed in Transformers know that those things are new. And you're not supposed to know what they're about. And it's just tipping, you know, it's, it's it's a nod to a bigger, broader canvas. And in time, you know, you'll, those blanks will be filled in. But to a brand new reader, that's just, it seems like wave after wave of lore that I'm, that I don't know about. And it, and it, the risk is it kind of, it, um, it distances you from the book. So yeah, there, there needs to be, you know, going back to what we said earlier, if, if Skybound is going to put out these new reprints, then I want to write a forward which says, hey, new reader, relax. You're going to read stuff and you won't know what it is, but that's by design. So just, you know, just enjoy the ride. Uh, everybody watching, if you know what uh, Starscream's attack on Luna 2 is, comment down below. <laughs> yeah, that's wonderful. I, I, I really like that. I would like to ask, so what are, what, I guess you already kind of said that, but what were some, what are your, some of your inspirations? Yeah, so as as a kid, well, as a younger person, I was I was heavily I was a big comic reader, and in the UK, in the eighties, certainly two thousand AD, was one of the sort of dominant action adventure titles, and so reading two thousand AD, I was into the obvious stuff like Judge Dredd, but I was also really into Zenith, which was one of Grant Morrison's earliest works about kind of like a, <laughs> and what I'm about to say sounds contemporary still but it's like a, it was a modern take on the superhero genre a very kind of british take which meant slightly you know satirical a bit irreverent a bit pointed it was all sort and it's grant morrison so all sorts of layers of sort of social critique most of which i'm sure passed me by as a kid mm -hmm. but um enjoyed zenith enjoyed abc warriors a lot halo jones you know really good 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 stuff and then we didn't have any comic shops in Guernsey, so where I live, which is a little island off the coast of France, part of the UK. Sounds we didn't have any comic shops. And we had, you know, news agents which would carry British comics, which is how I got into Transformers. 
but occasionally a shop would get some imported uh, DC and well, no, actually never Marvel imported DC titles. And I happened to be there when Justice League Europe uh, issue one came out. And then through that, through reprints in other UK titles, I got into Justice League International slash America. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. And actually more than 2000 AD, that really opened my eyes up to open my eyes to superhero comic possibilities, you know, and because my world, my comics world was quite narrow then. It, to me, it was like the world of this is what comics can do. And it was the kind of, and obviously, you know, those who have read more than me at CI will see, will see the parallels. But just, you know, characters, characters being at the forefront, you know, stories being driven by characters and character interactions. It was a kind of sitcom sensibility to it as well, which is a good segue into my other kind of influ- in, inspirations outside of comics was sitcoms generally, you know, like, like Blackadder. Um, and Red Dwarf was a big one. I don't know how much Red Dwarf has reached the States over the years. Is it PBS is the kind of... Yeah, I've heard it. And I keep yeah. meaning to watch it, but it's, you know, just one of those things where I need the dopamine and the ADHD yeah. will not allow that. Well, a, a sort of 30-second pricey for, for the uninitiated. It was a sitcom that started in 1988. Um, it was set in, obviously, it's a, on a mining ship in space, three million years into the future. Human race is extinct, except for one guy. <clears throat> he's a he's a vending machine repairman in, in a deliberate kind of inversion of all the normal kind of macho science fiction tropes. He's just an absolute slob. He's a layabout. He's an absolute loser. So he's the, he's the last remnant of humanity. He's joined by a hologram of his dead bunkmate, who's his kind of his nemesis. They just irritate each other. And a creature that's evolved from the ship's cat, so like a feline sapient ship's computer and then in later series the obligatory kind of robot so it's a, it was just a really you know dry kind of misanthropic sitcom it changed it's still going it's probably the longest running sitcom outside, non-animated in the world and it's waxed and waned over the years in terms of its quality but the first <clears throat> five six seasons absolutely brilliant and if you if you watch them you'll see the parallels with more than meets the eye definitely it was kind of like a bunch of losers in space and you kind of found yourself endeared to them because of their, you know, despite their flaws and because of their flaws. So there was that X-Files. I was a huge X-Files fan. Back in the day, I was there from the beginning with the X-Files and that really translates into how I like to... The, the X-Files mythology went awry, as we all know. But in the early days when you're watching it and you're being kind of drip-fed these little tantalising details... So I really took, you know, uh, took a leaf out of that book. And then more recently, the re- um, revived Doctor Who, Russell T Davies' Doctor Who in 2005. I'm a big Russell T Davies fan. I like Stephen Moffat too, but RTD is, is where it's at for me. Isn't he bad? Uh, pardon? He is, yeah. He's. I'm going to cough again, sorry. Yeah, he's just come back with, he's the showrunner again. They've just broadcast three specials. And uh, the new there's a Christmas special, and then uh, Shooter Gatwar is the new Doctor. Um, so that's all very exciting. Yeah. And then in terms of, of prose, you know, good old fiction, nothing really science fiction. I wasn't a big science fiction fan in terms of you know prose fan. I liked authors like Martin Amis and Graham Greene and Saul Bellow, Nabokov, and all these kind of 20th century literary greats really that sort of floated my boat as a as a teenager that's really but, cool yeah n- not sure how many how many of those have found their way into the into the comics but um they're lurking somewhere in the background so we're we're all nerds here 
is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. We're all friends. I mean, if the subject matter, you know, two Transformers nerds <laughs> on a writing podcast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we can't. Uh, we're also, yeah, we're the cool kids as well. It's all, it's all changed. This is where it's at. We're hip now. We're like, we are hip. Yeah. We're for the now, money anyway. makers. We make all the multi billion dollar story <laughs> ideas that we don't get paid for. Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. We're just ideas farms, ideas factories. We're like, here you go, Jeff on. Bezos. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Enjoy your billions. We've got we've got ideas, which you can take and turn into money and keep it. Doesn't seem right, but anyway. I've got ideas, man. Yeah. Ideas um, for other people to profit from. Exactly. That's why I'm a creator owned unless Webtoon stole it. I'm not sure, honestly. The contract <laughs> is a little iffy. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I don't own any of it, but um I had a had a blast, so that's wonderful. I let's see. Ah. Uh, I'm just, I'm really enjoying this. It's very exciting. How do you write out your stories? Like what, I should say, what software do you use or like pen and paper? And how do you go about laying out your story? Because they're often very complex. I mean, one of the meets the eye has all these little things that like you would have had to have had the whole story planned out to, you know, put in like issue one, the message from yeah. the future and all that stuff, the message from the future past whatever yes that's right yeah spoiler alert yeah um, oh yeah sorry guys no i um I th meticulous is the word i mean i i tried not to write myself into a corner not to overwrite things in terms of future events because you do want a bit of wriggle room you know a bit of headspace but the kind of big story beats were there and i for probably 80 70 or 80 percent of, of the time you know the, the first five or six years i would write everything longhand first of all I just found it easy. I had something, I don't know, something about, about the the physicality of it, of, of literally putting pen to paper. I found, I'll tell you what it was. I think when you, well, when I go straight to keyboard, the temptation to, to uh, edit is too great, you know? Mm. You know, you tweak and you edit and you rewrite and then you kind of slow yourself down. And I find with a pen and paper, I would just scribble away and then think, well, I'll go back to it later rather than immediately. And probably your listeners, unless they're more than meets the eye fans already, won't know this. But I put out these more than meets the eye notebooks. They're called uh, four volumes so far. There's another couple of volumes to come. The last two, and they are the they're literally my my notes, my almost like a diary of, of writing more than meets the eye. So all the story ideas, all the concepts. I used to scribble them in these notebooks, and uh, these these books I'm putting out are the transcribed notebooks. So it's kind of the raw materials of the comic. And that's kind of testament to just how much kind of raw materials I generated before I kind of refined it into scripts. So I would do it by by longhand first. And I'd usually start off with probably some kind of it, almost like an elevator pitch, some sort of, sort of concept or some some single sentence idea that could be mined for, um, you know, content, which sounds horrible. But you know what I mean? And then, you know, and, I, and the way I approach stories really is it's it's a synthesis of I guess I guess a cool idea, but one which is driven by and resolved thanks to characters and the decisions they make. And I think if you take either of those things away, you've got a lesser you know lesser result. Particularly if if you've got a great you know a high concept, but you haven't got any characters that sort of act as the engine, it could be, it can become very staid and artificial and quite soulless. By contrast, if you and this is what I prefer to do. I can't say I've always done it. But if you've got some kind of unusual sort of grabby idea and the story is about what that idea does to people or how they react to it. And if those reactions 
could only have really come about because of those particular characters. You know what I mean? So you can't just drop in any random character in, in an ongoing series. You can't just drop in any, any random character. You know, the, the things these characters are doing in response to this threat or this idea, this concept, whatever, you know, it's it's very true to them and the way that they act. So that's when, you know, that's, that's when I think you've got a good, you know, a blend of those different things. Anyway, do it by hand, refine it. Then I start typing it up. And then again, ed- I mean, editing, I love it. I love the editing stage when you get to that point and, you know, you've done the spade work and you're just, you know, you're refining, you're titivating, you're tweaking, you're polishing. Uh, and, you know, you've got a good, you know, you're you're pleased with how it's coming together. That's a lovely feeling. Yeah. And so that's kind of that would be my process in terms of approaching a long running comic with more than the eye. We were encouraged to not plot too much beyond the first 12 issues because we didn't know whether it was going to be successful. Uh, and then, you know, as the sales figures came in, it looked it was doing all right. So we were allowed to think further ahead. And so when we came to, I mean, again, it's a nod to TV stuff, really, but I started referring to kind of story arcs as seasons. So, you know, season one of More Than Meets the Eye is the first 22 issues. And season two, issues 28 through to 56, you know, a really big, 55 even, a really big multi-part storyline, really. And sitting down to write that out, you know, I spent I spent months making sure all the moving parts locked together sufficiently, you know, and kind of made um, like a narrative superstructure, really, or, or some or narrative scaffolding. And once you once I knew that was there and it was you know locked in and it made sense and it was kind of mutually reinforcing, and that will make sense to people that have read season two because it's all sorts of predestination and time travel shenanigans. Once the scaffolding was in place, then I could pay attention to... Imagine we were putting scaffolding up around a building. Once that's in place and, you know, the, the structure is safe, you can then start paying attention to the detail, you know, so, you know, the you know the paint or the little architectural flourishes, you know, you, you can attend to that knowing that all the big pieces are in place. So that was kind of the approach I took. I, I think that's a really good approach. I mean, obviously, it works for you, right? <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I yeah. often find it very helpful because I'm... You know, I'm the kind of person, right, I'm writing and I have it all planned out. And I'm like, well, maybe actually all of this is terrible and I need to change it, you know, and then I'll yeah. panic and like rewrite a bunch of stuff. But I always save the old drafts. Yeah, that's good, and, actually. You, yeah, you never know what you know, there might be something which you know, you've created it, but you've overlooked it at the time. It, it, for whatever reason, it didn't it didn't resonate at the time. But a year or two later, it'll bubble up to the surface again. And you'll well, see and it I in a different a list. Oh, oh, sorry. Uh-huh. You were gonna say? No, no, go. You keep a list. I keep a list of all the stuff that I'm like, make sure to foreshadow this. Yeah. Like of what I foreshadowed in previous issues so that even if I change it, it has to adhere to, you know, what I foreshadowed. Cause I don't want to like change it. And then it's like, you know, that thing where you said, you know, and this is the hypothetical example, like the character's mom was actually, yeah. you know, like that. You kind of got to follow up on that or people get annoyed. So, yeah. And then oftentimes I'll find, that the original or like the first three drafts, you know, are kind of where it was at anyway. And I go back to that. Yeah. Well, that that's, that's good because <clears throat> that gives you a bit of, hopefully a bit of confidence that actually your, your instincts were right in the first place. The, the downside with, with long form storytelling, when you, when you haven't got a lot of things locked in is once you're, once you've started down that path, you're more or less committed to it, you know? And, and it might, it might not be so much that, um, you know, you get cold feet or you think, actually, that's not as not as good an idea as I believed it was. Sometimes you might have a better idea as you're writing, you know, halfway through. But, you know, you can't you can't switch to that new idea because 
it would invalidate a lot of stuff you've already you know the uh, the seeds you've already planted have to germinate in a certain way so um it, it doesn't work for everything and i can imagine somebody maybe you've already had somebody on your your uh, podcast that is um a real advocate for for not you know planning too far ahead i mean there was um i mean larry harmer who um is probably most famous for writing gi joe a real american hero from 1982 to date and he while he had some really slow burning plots that took in some cases years to to kind of unfold he never he famously never planned beyond an issue you know and not only that but he would he would often sit down and start writing an issue not knowing where he was going to end up which is the antithesis of of, um, of my approach but you know it works for him and, and he he's written some fantastic stories so who's to say yeah it's and that's why I have so many different people on here because you never know what thing you hear is going to work for you. So I, I'm a big advocate of like, go, don't just listen to this podcast, like get a bunch of stuff about writing, about art and mix and match all the different advice you have here. And then, you know, just make a few different mini comics or write a few short stories, see what works for you. That Absolutely. is the key, man. You know, you're, you're right. I mean, if it works, basically if it works, it works. And if it works for you, and it's right. That's the um. You know, yeah. I've got myself a glass of water. You see, because I was coughing, coughing into your into your listeners' ears, which wasn't very nice for them. So um, <clears throat> yes, That's I was nice. going to say, pardon, I was going to say preemptively actually, because um, in terms of something I don't do, but I know I know other writers do, and again, there's no right or wrong way. But um, what I've always found a non-starter is is trying to think of a theme and then reverse engineer a story from that theme. So you know, this this is the this is the message I want to get across, or this is the you know, I'm, I want to write a story about I don't know grief. So okay, let's go back to the start. Now how how might I tell that story? So yeah, I've, I've always found that was something which I could never really I couldn't work in that order. You know, often you'd write a story and then themes would emerge, and the finished product may well absolutely turn out to be a kind of subtle or not subtle treaties on xyz but but very rarely did i think okay well i today i want to tell a story about x so how might i go about that how do you find you start stories um if it's not the theme is it a <coughs> character that you want to follow or just a, a weird little noodling sci-fi idea what do you i think yeah i mean if you were if i was a writer of kind of historical romance or something then uh, then my answer would be different but but as a kind of science fiction comic pulpy kind of guy then yeah, it would generally tend. It's, it would start off with like a concept. So if you were to look through these more than meets the eye notebooks, you'll see lots of just one-liner ideas. Like well, like you know, a, a planet, a hologram planet based on sitcoms, or personality parasites. You know, a, a transformation that takes a, a millennia to unfold. Stuff just just like little hooks, story hooks. Uh, but unfamiliar. Go on. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. If you're <laughs> unfamiliar it, with More Than Meets the Eye, it's dumber and more delightful than you could ever imagine. I love it. Yeah. So just this kind of big, goofy, knotty, chewy sci-fi stuff. But like I said earlier, that's going to be pretty dry and unengaging. But what when it gets interesting is when you drop your hopefully very well-developed, very larger than life, relatable cast into that mix. You know, so what happens when these guys that you've grown to love or hate collide with some weird, twisty, turny science fiction thing? And then, you know, hopefully the sparks will fly. Now, having said that, 
as more than meets the eye progressed, and like I say, so I always try and make it about you know the characters. I think I overuse the word the, the phrase character driven, but you know, it is driven by the decisions that these these people take and the motivations that they have. And as you come to a deeper understanding of what make, what makes them tick, then wonderfully that becomes more likely the driver for stories. So you rather than say, okay, what if what if they came across a ship where time moves backwards? And that that might have been something in the early days, but then you get to something like, well, what would happen if you know if Ultra Magnus discovered that is his best friend was a secret agent or whatever? I don't know. That's a that's a awful idea, but you get the point, right? It's um you find that you're you 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 find you're more rooted in their emotional responses to things and their own way of navigating life, and that's where the ideas come from. And that's a lovely feeling too, because you think, okay, well, I feel these are rounded enough as characters for them to be interesting to me, and that and I want to find stories in them rather than external things which happen to them. How do you go about starting a character off? Do you find that the characters do you start from an archetype? Do you just kind of have a little idea like? What if there was a character who really liked, you know, hyper filtered energetics and was a <laughs> yeah yeah? What do you you know? How do you where do the characters start in your mind? Well, I think you've you've probably answered my question, which is great. It it does tend to be archetypes, as you say, and I think this is a product of two of my influences. One is sitcoms, and I say this with love you know but but sitcom characters are, are dialed up to 11 right <laughs> you know they are because of the because of the form um they're kind of turned up they're brighter you know they're more saturated so you have a slight exaggeration to their main character traits and if you're not careful then you get you know flanderization you know they, they become too overblown so you've got to be careful but but in general terms i think you know take two or three big character beats you know and, and uh, yeah archetypes that becomes your sort of the um the key characteristics the sort of grounding elements of that character and then around that as you come to write them and i for me at least that's when you you start to introduce the little the, the, the subtleties and the quirks and you know maybe they've got a you know the little the little details again you've put, you've put the, to read to revisit an analogy you've put the scaffolding up that's the kind of big personality traits and then you start sketching in the details what's their favorite you know, are they into music? What's their favorite color? You know, and what have they got a sense of humor? What do they find funny? Actually, that that's a good example. So you might have, okay, well, I'm writing a character, and I know that he's kind of he's got a good sense of humor. You know, he's a fun character. He finds things amusing, and then as you as you as, as it moves from a sketch to a more detailed breakdown, you're like, well, what? Yeah, but what does he find funny, and why does he find that funny, and where does that? You know, has he got a dark sense of humor? What's that? You know, what's behind that? Is that masking something? And hopefully it's a it's a fruitful kind of iterative process the more you dig into things like that. And then the other thing outside of sitcoms, weirdly, was probably Transformers tech specs, you know. So for the for those that don't know, back in the day, in the first few years, and this honestly, this is a whole separate conversation around why Transformers won and GoBots lost and all the other ripoff cam franchises, the ripoff toy ranges lost. Transformers was always about the characters, first of all. And so you had Marvel Comics and Bob Budiansky for yeah, whether it was a $2 toy or a $50 toy, there'd be the same amount of, of biography and character written about that person. And notice how I said the word person without even thinking. So, um, you know, when I came to write a Transformers comic, I think I was thinking in terms of functions because each of these characters on their tech specs on the back of the toy box would have a function. So it would be, I don't know, espionage or 
subspace technician or a gunner and that's actually for a for a from a writer's perspective that's not a bad starting point you know what do they do what's their job how are they you know what what would what would other people in that universe think of them as doing you know why are they here yeah exactly why are they necessary right and 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 this is a i I mean this in every sense of the word what's their function (laughs) you know so what's their occupation what's their utility but also what's their point what why are they in this story you know and then as you as you build up each of your characters you've always got to be wary of interchangeability you know if you find yourself writing a scene and you know you've got various lines of dialogue and those lines of dialogue could be attributed to any one of number of characters and you're doing something wrong really Mm. i mean you don't want to go overboard with this and there is there's a whole heap of stuff in life dialogue wise which is just generic that's just conversation you know (laughs) so you can't much as i love stephen moffat there's i think stephen moffat is somebody that is terrified of turning in an everyday sentence you know i think he's i think weirdly i think it stems from a lack of confidence in his own work everything's got to be like a a quip or a bonmo or or an aphorism or something you know but um that aside i digress you do want to like if you were to read a dialogue exchange between certain characters in more than meets the eye i would hope that you can't just flip it around and say you know what we're gonna have character one start start that conversation now and, and give him character two's lines you want to be able to say, well, that, he wouldn't say that. You know, she wouldn't say that. Just as much as, as you think, well, no, she would. Just think how visceral and powerful it is when you're watching a long-form storytelling on TV or in a movie or whatever. And you're like, well, that that action is really out of character for that, you know, for that person. They, would, they wouldn't do that. And you want to be in a position where you can say, well, they wouldn't say that. You know, that, that doesn't sound right coming from their mouth. So anyway, that's, that's hopefully where we get to. Yeah, that's... Yeah, that's really good advice, man. Thank you for watching the video. If you enjoyed it, please remember to subscribe to my channel and hit the notification bell to be notified of my future uploads. You can also leave a like and comment below to let me know what you think of this video. And if you're a fan of my comic, Siblings of Steel, you can read it on my website, Webtoon, and Instagram. All the links are in the description below. If you want to support me and get access to exclusive content and early access to my videos, consider becoming a member of my Patreon community. Once again, thank you for watching, and I'll see you in the next one.